1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Liebel at Saint Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Muhtade Khan to discuss his book, "Islam and Good Governance: A Political Philosophy of Isan, published by Palgrave Macmillan Press in 2019. Within Islam, isan includes doing good deeds that God has ordained in all spheres of life. Islam and good governance seeks to develop a political philosophy based on isan, which emphasizes love, process, and self-restraint. Working at the intersection of political theory, international relations, mysticism, and theology, Dr. Khan interrogates two forms of Islamic political theory, Muslim realism and Islamic idealism. He argues that Muslim realism is based on selectively interpreting Islamic texts that emphasize fear and judgment of others. But this real politique version of Islamic political ideals often deployed in 21st century politics by jihadists is only possible if we ignore the Islamic ethical principles that emphasize self-regarding politics. Hiding in plain sight is a prophetic tradition that focuses on privileging perfection, doing better, and doing what is beautiful and or righteous. Dr. Khan ambitiously hopes to move contemporary politics and policy making from Muslim realism to Islamic idealism using Asan. Dr. Muhtad De Khan is a professor of political science and international relations at the University of Delaware. His many previous books focus on Islam and global affairs, specifically Islam- Islamic political philosophy, global Islamic movements, jihadism. Islam in America, and Sufism. He is also the creator of a YouTube channel where he hosts conversations. I recommend his latest episode on the 10 concepts to watch for regarding the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Khan to the New Books Network.
2: Thank you for having me, Susan. I'm quite excited uh, to talk about my book with you.
0: Uh, it's it's so fun to interview somebody who has interviewed so many authors himself. So I'm, I'm really delighted today as well. So you have a really unique pedigree. You have a PhD in international relations, political philosophy, and Islamic political thought from Georgetown. It's not the usual Georgetown PhD. And you've written several previous books on modern Islam. How did you come to this particular project? You
2: know... Uh, to talking about my PhD, I actually had to write uh, an intellectual paper, three to four pages, to justify uh, the the combination of topics I was studying. And I'm extremely grateful that Georgetown did make the accommodation because then we had to pull in faculty from other disciplines, not only for me to take classes, but also for me to be able to pass comprehensive exams. So this the project came out of a conversation I had with a couple of colleagues after I got tenured at, uh, at the University of Delaware. I actually got tenured twice. <laughs> so, but, so after I got tenured. Wait,
0: tell us that.
2: <laughs> so I, you see, one of the challenges for international students is to get a job before they finished their PhD. So I went to a liberal arts college called Adrian College but the teaching load was heavy I was teaching 5 classes in fall and 4 in spring and so plus 911 had happened and so my green card was delayed by several years so I got tenured and then applied for an assistant professor's job at the University of Delaware I came here and then applied again within a year to get tenured so when I talked to some colleagues about what should I do now I got two advices one colleague and and several of them said, "Look, you've been doing terrific, you're publishing like crazy. Just forget that you got tenured. Don't take the <laughs> don't take your foot off the pedal. Just go at the same pace and go up for full in 3 to 4 years." But one of my colleagues, uh, he's also very well known, Bob Denemark, told me something very interesting. He says, "Now you can write about whatever you want." And that was a That really had a very interesting impact. It made me think about myself, what I wanted to do and given the fact that I have a very unusual background, I have a bachelor's in engineering and a master's in business administration I I moved into this field because I was interested in philosophy and political philosophy and Islam So, but I feel that my career was kind of hijacked with 9-11 because I was forced to address issues that I would not want to address and so I spent actually uh, a few months thinking what I wanted to do and uh one fine day, it was in the same room that I was reading the Hadith of Jibreel, as it is called, the tradition of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, in which when I read the definition of Ihsan, which I had heard many times, read many times, but that day it sunk in as to what a profound concept it was. And then I decided, um, there are two traditions. One tradition is very well known, it says that God has commanded Muslims, to do Hasan in every aspect of life. Uh, by ehsan, it the way it's translated is to do beautiful things. Because the word hasana or husan means beauty, to so do beautiful things or to improve things or to do things well. So I thought if God has commanded us to do beautiful things in all aspects of life, then why not in politics? And so that was my research question. What would be uh, the aesthetics of politics? How would we do, what would be a beautiful foreign policy? What would be a beautiful domestic policy? And even though this book is couched in Islamic uh, ethos, Islamic language, especially from the Quran, I think the essence of the book that, that in every society there must be a group of people and I call them uh, a group of Mohsins or society of Mohsins, those who want to do beautiful things. There should be in every society a group of people who criticize the government for being realistic and even pragmatic and demand that we respond to every challenge in the most beautiful possible way. I know that is impractical, and I also understand that this is aspirational. But what I want to do is to set the benchmark of what is beautiful so that when our politicians and policymakers choose less than a beautiful option, they should be embarrassed and not proud of the policy choices. So, for example, uh, we are dealing with a global crisis now with 2 million refugees coming out of Ukraine. So what would be the most beautiful way to respond and my answer is to do everything that we possibly can to f- to provide them security, etc. And of course, then there will be others saying, oh, we can't do this, it violates these laws, it violates that, etc. And we can't afford to do it because it's going to be too expensive, we have elections and so on. But I want them to be embarrassed and shameful that they're not doing the best possible thing and they're doing things which are more consistent with politics than, than aesthetics. So, so therefore, I think that this book uh, addresses a lot of things. But there is an, another aspect to it. So for example, if you read all the verses in the Qur'an, which talk about ahsan, uh, everybody translates that as to do beautiful things. So, God says in the Quran, Ahsanu <laughs> inna Allah yuhibul muhsinin. Do beautiful things. God loves those who do beautiful things. Uh, there is another tradition which is very beautiful. It says that God is beautiful and He loves beauty so 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 that is where ahsan comes it's not just doing good deeds it's doing beautiful deeds which is which means to go f- far and beyond what is expected of the virtuous not of the ordinary it is to go far beyond what is expected of even the virtuous so so that was thing but in this particular tradition of jibril the prophet peace be upon him described ahsan in a very interesting way he said ahsan is to worship god as if you see him. And if you cannot see him, then know that he sees you. So the second part is very simple. This The idea that God is observing you, this is very monotheistic. He's going to judge you on the day of judgment, whether you do things right and he'll punish you, maybe if you do things wrong. But what does it mean to worship God as if you see him? And that is what intrigued me, and I started on this journey of research in the Quran, etc. In fact, I met a uh, an interesting man in, in Morocco who was the king's architect. He used to build palaces. And he abandoned everything and went into the desert to help the poor market their handicrafts. That's all he does now. Helps poor people sell their handicrafts. And when I asked him, he said, there was somebody like you who came from France about 20 years ago, and asked me the meaning of Ihsan. And when I was translating and say Ihsan is to worship God as if you see him, the word in Arabic is ta'budu. So what is interesting is that you can translate it as to worship or also as to serve. And ta'budu allaha ka'annaka tarahu to worship Allah as if you see him or to serve God as if you see him. He said, for some reason, on that day, I translated it as "to serve God," and then he ha- he went on this introspective trip as how am I serving God? And so he decided that serving God is to serve the most marginalized in his society. But that was a a, a thing that triggered me. There's a verse in the Quran when Moses goes into the desert, and he has encounter with god the verse in the quran is rabbi arini unzur ilayka so moses is praying to god and saying oh lord show thyself so that i may gaze upon you and to me that was the connection even moses wanted a moment of ahsan and therefore this whole book is about ahsan its cosmological meaning its mystical meaning and then the most difficult part as to how to take something that is an individual virtue and translate it into a political philosophy and how can it impact public policy. That is what the book is about.
0: And the book is structured such that we we get the argument, but at all times we're aware that this is not simply an academic argument. It, it, it is academic. It's highly researched. It's very, very carefully presented and evidenced. But on the other hand, it's always clear that what you're trying to do is affect the narrative that has grown up around Islam in the contemporary political moment that we we live in. Um, I, I want to ask you uh you you use this uh, term sort of that this that this interpretation was sort of hiding in plain sight. You say that you were sort of sitting in the room that we're speaking to you in right now, and it and it occurred to you. Uh, talk to me a little bit about what had been done previously to you writing this book, uh, in terms of thinking about Islam in these two very very different ways, and then out a- and then after that we'll talk a little bit about. What Muslim realism is, and what Islamic idealism might look like. But, but first, just kind of a little bit of a lit review, like what what had been out there. Um, you're doing very interdisciplinary work. What 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 kinds of traditions were you building on? So,
2: once I got the idea that I was going to do this, I I had to do several things and. One of the things I had to do was to go back and uh, improve my Arabic. And I had studied Modern Standard Arabic at Georgetown. But I had to study Quranic Arabic, so I I got very lucky. There was a scholar here in Delaware who was offering classes, so I studied with him for more than two and a half years, uh, and then I went to Morocco and spent several months working on that. But during the same period, I was also talking to scholars and traditional scholars and professors, etc., and it was very interesting to find that every time I spoke with uh, Sufis, practicing Sufis, their response was, of course, of course you're right. And they were thrilled. They would get up and hug me and say, I'm glad you're doing this. Uh, But I found that they were not very disciplined as academics like They'll say, oh, I said, where in the Quran does the uh, does the Quran talk specifically about Ahsan? And they'll say it's all over in the Quran. And the Quran is full of the essence of Quran is Ahsan. And they would say things like that. And that to an academic is, you know, where's the footnote? I want, I want page numbers, right? So so it was very difficult talking to it. And so but what was interesting is that there are two books that have been written in the uh, in the 20, 20th century about Ahsan one by a very Salafi scholar, you know a puritanical scholar from Egypt who studied in Saudi Arabia. That was his dissertation His name is Sheikh Hassan And uh, he did an incredible job of research in the sense that he documented his book very well So all the verses of the Quran that even remotely touched upon Hassan He documented them fully quoting them and all the possible traditions and other scholars So for me he, he became a starting point in many ways and uh, even though I profoundly disagreed with everything, what he ultimately did was what the tradition has done is reduce Hassan to... to to the realm of religion and religiosity and spirituality. So yes, in in the month of Ramadan, you will seek Ahsan by fasting and this and that, but not bring it into the realm of politics or even in interaction, especially in interfaith relations, et cetera, where Islam as an empire and realism and real politics and considerations of power begin to dominate because one element of Ahsan is self-annihilation, which is fana, which is self-effacement, whereas the political side is assertion of Islamic identity in a forceful way, even in a dominant way. So it completely, it is the complete opposite of Ahsan. So in, when it comes to political realm, uh, so you find political Islamists, whether they are the peaceful kind like the Muslim Brotherhood or Jamaat-Islami, who want to establish an Islamic state, the idea of Islamic identity becomes very important and the assertion of Islamic identity becomes uh, of great symbolic value. And for them, the idea of Fana, self-effacement, is contradictory. So so they would not bring it in. So even very prominent scholar like Sheikh Ibn Taymiyyah, who is a scholar who has inspired uh, the Saudi version of Islam, and even a lot of contemporary scholars, he wrote a book called Kitab al-Iman, the book of faith, and he starts. his starting point is the same as mine, the same hadith of Jibril. It's a very famous tradition in which, uh, upon being questioned by angel Gabriel, prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, answers questions, five questions, two are about the end of times. But the three questions are, what is Islam, what is Iman, what is Ahsan? And that is where we get the definitions and understandings. So the idea of five pillars, for example, comes from this answer that the prophet gave to Gabriel. So Ibn Taymiyyah also starts from there, and he actually uses the word saying these are the three stages of islam he uses the arabic word darajat which means category not categories but hierarchical stages so ahsan is the highest form of islam and islam is which is about rituals etc is the 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 basic form of islam but then he proceeds to write about iman the middle part and the whole book is about iman and he gives only three pages to ahsan in his entire book But these two scholars, Sheikh Hassan, did a good job, but he reduced it to ritual. And then there is a very prominent Moroccan Sufi scholar. One of the tragedies of my life was I was scheduled to meet with him, but he was in a very far corner of Morocco. And I thought, well, I'm coming back next month. I will meet him. And I came back to the U.S. and he passed away. (laughs) Oh, it was horrible. When I came back the next time, his daughter said, I gave you his number. (sighs) And I said, "Oh my God! It was. I mean, I don't know what to say. I, I would have really wanted to meet." So he wrote a book called Adulwa ahsan Oh, wait. Before you said, go
0: on, I, I, I just want to say that, like, that story of the interview not done, the phone call not made, the ways in which life gets in the way of research is so is so common. I hear, I hear this a lot from authors, and I think it's important to forgive yourself for, you know, for not for for occasionally not following some something um, it's just I think it's part of our it's it's part of the fate of being um, a scholar there's a little bit more
2: to it because I'm afraid to question my motives because when I was looking for his book it's called Adel wa Ehsan Justice and Ehsan and it's a party and a movement in Morocco called which is anti-royals and so, to a great extent, it is banned. In fact, I was having trouble finding this book. So, a very prominent Moroccan scholar, uh, Dr. Fatima Mernissi, who's very famous for her books about uh, gender and Islam, she took me personally to find this book, and she took me to a. And the, she says, "This is the only book that is currently available, and you're getting it." Uh, uh, and it, so. I, I don't know did I avoid meeting him because I was afraid that the security people might watch me I, I have no idea it was just didn't happen but the second book was interesting he was a practicing Sufi he I know because when I read his book I understand that he understood it exactly the way I understand but he's he was not a from an academic perspective, a good writer. So most Sufi scholars I found are not the way we are in the modern sense of, you know, very particular about, you know, citing the, the, the Salafi scholar was very good. So there are these two books. But going back into the tradition, it took me two years to just go through the entire tradition. And it, was, it was amazing how much work Muslims have done on the concept of Hassan, but more in the mystical realm, more in the realm of... Uh, uh, of spirituality and also in terms of, uh, uh, of psychology also to some extent, but not really ever bringing it into the political sphere. I found very few. I found a Persian famous Sufi called Sheikh Saadi who wrote two books which are actually considered by Time magazine as part of the 100 best books ever written, Gulistan Bosta. And uh, when I read the first paragraph of that book, it, it cites the the without citing the author referred to the verse in the Quran which talks about asam. And I said, oh, I have to look at his work. And I could see that a lot of his policy recommendations to the king were based on compassion and love and tolerance uh, and forgiveness to a great extent. And he keeps citing this verse from the Quran, which says, do beautiful things. God loves those who do beautiful things and say, so, be forgiveful, God will love you for being forgiven forgiving and so on and so forth. So the literature was very profound. So I did, my, I have two chapters in the book. In one chapter, I completely review everything that has been written about Ahsan in the last 1400 years, which is chapter four. Uh, so, But not only that, I also explored uh, how Ehsan is presented in the Qur'an and how Ehsan is presented in the traditions and how scholars, I even look at how non-Western scholars have written about Ehsan. There's a professor called William Chittick who's very famous in Islamic studies and Sufi studies, and all his books are about Ehsan directly or indirectly, Uh, so so there are contemporary scholars in the West who have written about Hassan. There is also a soft turn to a Sufism inside American Muslims and Muslim Islam. So you have prominent scholars like Sheikh Hamza Yusuf in California. So if you go to YouTube, you'll find that nearly every prominent preacher in America has given a sermon on Hassan. Uh, it's very common, which you won't find in other parts of the Muslim world, but you find the... I think the percentage of Muslim... Uh, preachers who have given sermons on Ehsan might be the highest in the U.S. than anywhere else in the world. Uh, so, so to me, it was very interesting. So I became aware of the profound depth of the tradition's understanding of Ehsan, but I also became increasingly aware of, of, of this gap, of, of applying it uh, in real life, uh, applying it in public policy. There's a small story I want to share about a Sufi which will give you an idea of what I mean. So there was this, I mean, these are apocryphal stories which are, I guess, created to to inspire people. So there was this Sufi guy who would sit on a mountain and remember God every day. Whenever he felt hungry, an apple would fall from the tree and he would eat it. And whenever he was thirsty, water would sprout out of a rock and he would. But after about like 15, 20 years, his woollen courts, which are famous for Sufis, began to wear off, he started feeling cold. So he comes down the mountain into the, the city and in order to find a court and he's horrified by what has happened, all this TikTok and Facebook and Twitter. And he says the people have gone crazy, they have forgotten God, they have become vile and, you know, have moved away from the right path. He's just horrified by the reality of the world. And he starts running up the mountain, back up. And on the way, he screams and says, God, have you seen what has happened to the world? God says, yeah, I can see that. So he says, why didn't you do something about it? And God said, I did. He said, what did you do? He said, I created you so the point was that you were not supposed to sit up on the mountain you're supposed to live down in the village and you know fight the 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 negative trends in society and so to me that is yes sitting on the mountain and trying to become one with god is mysticism and ahsan but the real ahsan is to come down into this world and try to make it a more beautiful place and i think that was I found that missing in the tradition to a great extent. Sufis, those who did not write but who spent a lot of time uh, working with the marginalized, they did practice it, but not from an academic perspective. They did not expound a political philosophy of Islam. They just lived it. And and the 18th century in India in particular, where there was this explosion and growth of uh, Islam, uh, was primarily because of Sufi Sufi scholars who actually lived with the marginalized uh, and tried to make their lives beautiful.
0: So one of the early chapters of the book um, is called "The Loss of Essan," and and there you're trying to uh, you know make the case for how it is that that. That Islam, Islamic thought, didn't develop in the way that you've you've just described, and and what I found very very interesting about uh, this early chapter was the way that it deployed case studies, modern case studies, to make clear what you were talking about. And so I was wondering if you could start us off by sort of so that we can understand what it is that Assan is contrasted to, even though I, th- I think a lot of listeners know this because in fact it, it is what we're hearing politically. But if you could either use one of the case studies or short versions of the both to to show us of how this absence has been filled with something else and get a sense of that content so we can better understand Islamic identity. So one of
2: the things that I learned by looking at the way Muslim scholars preach Islam is they seem to have a very negative perception of human nature. They seem to think that if human beings left to their own will choose bad options, inethical and immoral choices as if immorality is the default position and so they must be guided if necessarily by force <laughs> towards doing the right thing. So when I was looking at these two cases uh, I had to make the case that uh, why asan, we need to pay a t- greater attention and so I looked at one case which I thought was uh, extremely simple straightforward nothing to do with politics etc which was what what to do if you break your fast in the month of Ramadan by having sex with your spouse? Uh, And uh, the answer is very interesting. It's a very, uh, it is a tradition in which a man comes and tells the prophet, O O, O prophet of God, I have done this. Uh, What should I do? How should I make up for this fast? Now in the Quran, uh, God says very clearly in the second chapter that if you miss a fast because you're traveling, you're unwell, etc., you just repeat another fast and it's done. But in this tradition, the prophet says, Free a slave as a compensation. He said, I don't have slaves. So he said, If you don't have slaves, then you should fast 60 days to make up for this one day. And the man says, fasting is my problem. <laughs> can't, so uh, there's no way I will be able to do 60 fasts. So the prophet says, why don't you feed 60 people? And he says, I'm very poor. So while this conversation is happening, another man comes into the mosque and he presents the prophet with a basket of dates as a gift. So the prophet turns around and says, where is that man who was here? He said, I'm here. He said, look, take these dates and go and feed it to 60 people and you're taken care of. So he says, you know, O Prophet, that uh, between the two mountains of Medina, there is nobody poorer than me. So he claimed that he's the poorest man. So the Prophet says, okay, why don't you go and enjoy these fruits with your family? But when you go out and ask this fatwa, you ask scholars of Islam and institutions we give fatwa, and you ask them, what should I do when I do the same thing? they insist that you fast 60 times or feed 60 people. And in fact, the Hanafi school of law, which is supposedly the most rational, which I belong to, actually insists that you fast 60 days consecutively. So if on the if you break the 59th fast, you start all over again. So I was surprised that we say that the Quran, Islam is based on two sources. One is the Quran and the other is the Sunnah of the Prophet or his precedence and his practice. So, in his practice, the prophet, this man came home with a basket of dates. Uh, and uh, the prophet showed so much understanding about the weakness of human nature in that sense. And he showed so much compassion with this man and did not say, what, what, what are you up to? You don't want to do anything. You know, he had to go down a whole hierarchy of compensations for, for committing a sin. And at the end of it, the prophet made him a better person. And there are other traditions in which he says, you know, Muhammad is so wonderful and compassionate. But when I look at fatwas given by very prominent contemporary Muslim scholars and even Al-Azhar University and others, they just stop at... uh, I mean, they don't ask for emancipating a slave, obviously, but they look at it and they just say, fast 60 days or feed 60 people. They they don't go. Uh, And then I look at another case of blasphemy, especially in Pakistan, and how Muslim scholars have interpreted... And my conclusion is that that often these scholars err on the side of harshness and they they eliminate the compassion and forgiveness in the practice of the Prophet Muhammad. And so the interpretations of law that they are advancing is without asan. Uh, It is full of uh, harshness. They have this imagination that if you let them do this, they will do that, and they will stop fasting, and Islam will disappear from earth. And so this is it. I'm drawing the red line here, and I'm going to punish this person no matter what the sin they did. So there seems to be this attitude of being harsh and tough and intolerant. And you know the sad part of it is that uh, uh, I remember this when the Boston attack happened. Uh, if you remember the Boston, the, the the two, yeah. So at that time, I was giving a Friday sermon a day or two after that. And so most traditional scholars who give the sermon, and I do too in the traditional format, we end the sermon with a verse from the Quran, which says, uh, Bismillah, Inna Ya ya'muru bil adli wal ihsan. So this verse is in the 16th chapter of the Quran. It basically says, indeed allah has commanded uh, justice with ahsan inna allah amaru bil adli wal ihsan god has commanded that you just do justice with ahsan and i have i have said it many times in the last 20 30 years that i have occasionally given khutbahs and every time i listen to a friday sermon 99% of the time that is how it ends but that day it hit me that justice is not enough that's what god is saying If justice was enough, he would have just said, God commands justice in every aspect of life. He doesn't say that. He says, do justice with compassion. Do justice with Ahsan. Clearly sending the message that justice is not enough. And that insight to me really shook me up. And this was while writing the book, so you can uh, it, it confirmed the direction to me at least in which I was writing the book uh, uh, and I realized that one of the things that had happened in Islamic legal tradition is that they had excluded asan in pursuit of justice so th- they may argue that Islamic law is about justice and so our interpretations of Islamic law are pursuit of justice but God is not really interested in this uh, letter of the law <laughs> he's interested in the spirit of piety and devotedness and that comes with uh, balancing uh, the law with Ahsan, and therefore the book talks about you know privileging love over law
0: and I'm not sure that this gets this right but uh, if my reading of the book is correct it's not just justice it's that there's a kind of a, a an understanding of justice that is particularly focused on retribution particularly focused on harshness so it Ahsan can also be part of justice. And that seems to be one of the themes that, that, yeah, that I'm you trying you're, to
1: you're You
2: can have your justice, but the way you interpret justice is uh, in a very compassionate way. There are always many ways of interpreting things. And so I recommend that we err on the side of compassion rather than erring on the side of harshness. And I My contention is that in many cases, especially on contentious issues, uh, uh, I settled with only two case studies uh, because I did not want to distract people from talking about Ahsan and getting into the nitty-gritties of Islamic law. One of the issues of Islamic intellectual heritage is that the Islamic legal tradition has become so complex and so hegemonic that it marginalizes every other discourse within the Islamic tradition to such an extent that today we are supposed to draw Islamic law from the Qur'an and understanding of the Qur'an. And people now who are doing interpretations of Qur'an often try to do it to remain consistent with an already articulated law. So the law has become, you know, a a kind of... uh, uh, a sieve through which we see everything that is islamic or not so my 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 goal was also to escape that uh, you know to escape that prism of islamic law which confines uh, our, our vision of our own fate <laughs>
1: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
0: So uh, let me try to push us a little bit through more of the argument of the book. Uh, The result of this kind of narrow, uh, very particular interpretation of the text leads to, uh, you know, a century at least of focus on this. And part of what you want to demonstrate is that it's not simply uh, – a. a a narrow understanding of justice, but that the focus on political, pardon me, identity is what has a, very, very particular uh, effect on contemporary American politics. And so, very briefly, if you can just articulate that part of the argument, because I think that's really important and interesting for political theorists.
2: As the Muslim world started to decolonize uh, from from colonial oppression, they they were confronting two things. They were confronting a way to return to Islam and also confronting with how to deal with the challenges of modernity. And one of the most uh, predominant uh, response to modernity has been political Islam, the emergence of groups such as the Jamaat-Islami in South Asia and Ikhwan al-Muslimin in the in the Arab world. And so we have experienced about a 100, 150 years of Islamic revival and renewal and a lot of talk about how to the civilizational renewal. Even every day today we hear uh, Muslim scholars talking about how to renew and make Muslim societies invigorated. There were and, and the concern basically is lagging behind the West uh, in prosperity, in, in knowledge production, in power, and the lack of autonomy that the Muslim world suffers from as a result of Western domination. All of this uh, uh, motivates Muslim scholars to think of revival, unity. But what they, I believe they have ended up doing is reduced Islam to an identity. So people want to identify with Islam, but not struggle to practice it. So, for example, the violence that Al-Qaeda and and ISIS did was first, their largest number of victims have been Muslims without. They have killed thousands of more Muslims than they have killed or attacked any so-called enemies of Islam or enemies of Muslims. Number two, the kind of, whenever they got an opportunity to, to govern, like ISIS did for For a few years they established a caliphate where they were able to implement their vision of islam and as do taliban in afghanistan their manifestations are hardly appealing i mean there's no way i'm going to ever go and want to live in those societies right so so the question is that why are they interpreting the faith in such a harsh way because they are trying to distinguish it's about performance it's a performative aspect they are trying to perform some things and said, look, look at us. We are being so consistent. Even now, for example, um, in Pakistan, Imran Khan is uh, apparently on his way out. He's become very weak. And now suddenly he's talking about the constitution of Medina uh, and uh, and how to establish a So he's performing to for his audience that look, I'm a Muslim and I'm, I'm Islamic and I want to establish an Islamic state. Please keep me in power. So this whole idea of using identity uh, uh, and making Islam rather than a source of values that constrain and inform our action, it is an identity with the, which we are trying to to perform. And I think it has it has made uh, societies more superficial than vibrant. That's my critique in response to the the so-called emergence of Islamic movements. And because of this, the right of the Islamic movement, which is Al-Qaeda, which is coming from the extreme, they are able to latch on to this obsession with Islamic law. We have created this litmus test that uh, the only way we can be Muslim is to implement Islamic law. Uh, Sayyid Qutb argued that even a country with 99% Muslim population was not a Muslim country until it implemented Islamic law. So you could have a country with 5% Muslims, but if they were enforcing the Sharia, then it would be an Islamic state uh, and if you had a country with 99% Muslims. So, so what happened in the last 100 years is this obsession with Islamic identity, the manifestation has become Islamic law. So when the Taliban take over Afghanistan, they have these five or six symbolic things that they do push the women in Parda in, in or, you know, in in lesser status in society, have this two or three other Islamic symbolism bring in the hudud punishments harsh punishments of Islam and say, look, we are an Islamic society But there's so much more to Islam. Where is justice, Where is compassion, uh, eliminating poverty. Some of these countries which talk a lot about uh, uh, Islam have the lowest rankings when it comes to human development index. If you go and look at HDI, Afghanistan is the lowest. Yes, partly because of the wars. But uh, the idea of the human development index produced by actually a Muslim scholar uh, was to to get around just measuring quality of life based on economic success. So so that's my whole point, that this obsession with with the law has made people... From a political theory perspective, you need to have, and this is true of Islam also fundamentally, that the law should serve society, not the other way around. So Muslims have a law, which they say is a divine law, and now they want a society to serve that law, rather than the other way, where they have Muslim societies who are dealing with all kinds of challenges, modernity, post-modernity, poverty, colonialism, imperialism, and so on, and globalisation. So we need a legal system which will help the societies deal with this. So we need a law that serves the society and not the other way around. That That's a common knowledge. Any political philosopher will tell you that. But the Muslim society seems to be stuck backwards. Uh, and uh, that is one of the points that I was trying to make in this book, is that we need to rethink this whole project and move away from uh, Sharia obsession, which, well, we'll see how that works out. <laughs>
0: Well, uh, and and I'd like to get back to that in just a minute. What are the highlights of the book? And I'm going to point people to it and not have you uh, describe it because I think you've done elements of it and just in the... thinking about time and really wanting to end on how Isan is translated into contemporary politics. I'll just say that chapter six is a chapter that even if people are not going to read the entire book, even if you're not an IR scholar, even if none of this uh, sort of more ambitious uh, political philosophy and uh, a public policy change is, is your thing. Chapter six is something that you should look at because what it gives you, it's called an Islamic political philosophy, a critical genealogy, and it traces Islamic political philosophy over time this is a beautiful chapter that really gives you an understanding of key classical figures and and connects them to the key contemporary so if if people are looking to understand better themselves this political philosophy if they're under want their graduate or undergraduate students to understand it this this is a place to look um, it's it's really well done and a great contribution the last chapter of of the book is where you really try to outline your vision. And and it's a vision of truly transforming politics from one that is focused, as you have described, more on Muslim identity, a real politique, a kind of a a justice interpreted at its most negative and, and its most harsh, But you see an alternative way. uh, And I'd like you to articulate, you've already talked about elements of it, but I, I would like you to sort of for us to end with what it is your hope is in pointing out to people that they have been not fully understanding the Islamic political tradition, and now that they do what might we do with this fuller, richer, more nuanced understanding of the political philosophy that has been there for centuries?
2: So so there is a verse in the Quran which says La Ikraha there is no compulsion in religion. It is the two hundred and fifty sixth verse of chapter two. There's another verse in chapter 3, 110, which says that God has created you as the best example for humanity so that you may encourage them to do good and forbid them to do evil. So the the first verse provides freedom. Like there is no compulsion. So you cannot have public policy that forces virtue upon people. The second one encourages Muslims to, to go out there and do good and forbid evil. Those who privilege the second verse, establish authoritarian states. And those, like modern Muslim liberals who privilege the first verse, are talking about freedom and autonomy and essentially Islamic secularism. So this is the boundaries between which Islamic political philosophy revolves. So I'm going to talk only about two elements. People can read the book for uh, the, the ten other ways in which I talk about it. One is uh, I talk about the shift from national interest to national virtue. So one way to articulate beautiful policies is to focus on national virtue rather than national interest. You can see this in today's debates as Biden struggles to deal with Russia. Uh, you know, America's national interest may not involve in us getting that intimately involved uh, in trying to help Ukrainians. Already the prices of gas is hitting $4 or more. We're going to pay a heavy price for this war, regardless of what the outcome of the war is. So the national interest says, you know, like like India is not getting involved. It's falling its national interest. Whereas Biden is saying, but this is not who we are. We are Americans. We We, we will help countries that are free, we want to fight for freedom, etc. So he is tr- trying to struggle between national interest and national virtue. And I think that is a challenge for Muslims. They need to to talk about national virtue, but not in a way that is, okay, I'm going to make you a good Muslim, whether you like it or not, but to, to have a society which has open discussions about what should be our national virtue and then we try to move towards that. The second thing is about when we talk about Sharia, Sharia, uh, there's another Quranic principle called shura, which is of mutual consultation, which many Muslim scholars say, oh, this is democracy in Quran. Quran is the only religious text which has a chapter on democracy, which is chapter 42, which is on shura. Shura bainahum who means to conduct your affairs. God commands Muslims to conduct their affairs through mutual consultation. So it's not just consultation, whereas it's like deliberative democracy. You deliberate together. So my suggestion is that Muslims aspire for Sharia through Shura so Sharia through Shura that means you do arrive at what is the Divine Law but through mutual consultation through a democratic process. Uh, and that is how you would establish what is called as Ijma in Islamic law, which is a consensus among society. So you're working towards building consensus about what are national virtues, what are the values that we will pursue, and how we will pursue this. So, as I mean, it sounds very normative and aspirational, but I think uh, that has been my purpose, to articulate an alternate vision and say, Uh, this is the best version of ourselves that we can be. And that is what Ahsan is about. God wants you, um, you know, how would you be if you were actually living life as if you had made eye contact with God? That's my point. Ahsan is to live life as if you have made eye contact with God. Wouldn't you be at your best behavior? Wouldn't you be at your best in every way? Wouldn't you dress your best? Wouldn't you try to look your best? Wouldn't you speak in your best possible way? Wouldn't you do the best possible things? That is what Asan is. Asan is this particular state uh, in which uh, you are aspiring not just to be the best version, but actually perhaps trying to transcend yourself uh, to even reach out for something more beautiful than you could ever be.
0: So books, uh, you finished this book and it was published in 2019, what are you working on right now and what do we have to look forward to reading?
2: So this book took a lot out of me. Uh, It took six, seven years to do it and I, I had one very interesting moment in the beginning where a very prominent Moroccan Sufi told me, you cannot write this book. I'm an engineer, I thought I can write on quantum physics if I want. I was so upset with him. He said, no, you cannot write this book because it's like, if you wanted to write a book about an orange, you would say it is round and it's yellow. What more? You cannot write about orange until you taste it. And so his challenge to me was, how can you write about mysticism if you have not experienced mysticism? How can you write about Hassan if you have not seen God? Uh, or at least worshipped as if you see God. So that was a huge challenge. So writing this book was actually transformative in my own life. I got much more engaged in in Islamic mystical practices. Uh, uh, And so so that was interesting. So I'm a Sufi without joining Sufi orders of any kind. Uh, So this book at least changed my life, that much I can tell you. My next project is actually... uh, I was trying to write about a book on the many crises that uh, impact the Muslim world, but I have shelved it to focus on only one, the rise of Hindu nationalism in India. Uh, uh, and uh, they are doing the same thing that I've been critical of Islamic movements, of trying to create uh, a national identity, a Hindu identity, and give a country a Hindu identity. But in the process, they are erasing Muslim uh, heritage, Muslim past, Muslim present. They want Muslims to disappear from the present and the past of India. Uh, and this erasure of Muslims uh, and uh, this, w- which accompanies violence and systematic uh, reduction in rights uh, and even economically depriving Muslims opportunities. So my next book, inshallah, is going to be about India. Uh, and I want to apply these lessons of Ahsan. I want to advance a vision of India that all Indians would like.
0: Well, I look forward to having you back on New Books in Political Science to talk about it. We've had the pleasure of talking to Muqtada Khan to talk about his book, Islam and Good Governance, A Political Philosophy of Isan, from Palgrave Macmillan Press in 2019. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us.
2: Thank you, Susan, for reading my book and uh, for this interesting conversation. And thank you for new books in political science.